Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Let's ask the Lord's blessing as we continue our our worship. Father, I, I, um, I reiterate Chris's exhortation to us. This matter of, of faith is absolutely central. Not simply to what it means to be a Christian, but ultimately what it means to be a human being. What it means to be rightly related to the God whose image and likeness we bear. And Father, it strikes me as a huge tragedy that that for so many, certainly in our day and time, faith has been trivialized. It's, It's been reduced down to either a formula to get our sins forgiven so that we can have the assurance of heaven and get on with our lives. Or it becomes the wishful thinking that says simply if we will believe enough, then we will gain what we seek. A kind of mantra by which our goals, our desires, our aspirations will be realized with the confidence that the goodness of our God means that our God will Meet our every whim. He will indulge us at every point. He will fix all of our problems. He will resolve all of our challenges. And I pray, Father, as we dive into this great chapter, that we would not merely see a collection of people who, in a certain sense, trusted you, but that we will see this legacy of faith that trusted the God who had promise. Men and women who lived in the context of a cursed world, who had to live in a world characterized by exile and alienation, hostility and enmity on every hand, and yet believed that the good creator who had revealed his intent in Eden would indeed one day restore all things that the promise of life out of death would one day be realized. And certainly it has been, and in a way that those patriarchs of the faith couldn't even begin to imagine. And Father, even so, though we look back on your accomplishment in Jesus, it remains true for us as well that Eye has not seen, ear has not heard. It has never even entered into the mind of a human being what you've prepared for those who love you. And I pray our hearts would be bowed low before you in joyful, eager 
devoted worship. This is our God. This is the God who is. This is the God who is the rewarder of those who seek him. So capture our hearts in this time. Gather us up as your people into the joy and the glory that are in the face of Christ our Lord. May he be exalted in this time through faith. And it's in his name that we ask. Amen. As we continue into chapter 11 of Hebrews, we come to the writer's second example uh, of a man of faith. And that is the man Enoch. And obviously there's a, a kind of logic in him being the second choice. In the Genesis account, Enoch is presented very quickly uh, after Abel and certainly presented as, as a man who is characterized by faith. It's also suitable, certainly coming from a Jewish writer and writing to a Jewish audience, uh, the uniqueness of Enoch. He's, a, he's an enigma but the uniqueness of that man caused him to be a, a preoccupation in, in Jewish history. There's a, a, even an apocryphal writing, the book of Enoch, uh, which probably the, the beginnings of it go back a couple hundred years before Jesus came into the world. But Enoch was kind of a central figure in Jewish rabbinical thought and in uh, speculation. The, the citation that you see in, in Jude is drawn from that traditional understanding of Enoch and his significance in God's purposes. Not recorded in the scripture, but as a matter of Jewish speculation, Jewish contemplation, uh, Jewish interaction. And, and so Enoch is a very significant figure, but he also, I think, is important in the sense that he's the next step in the development of this idea of faith and how what faith and faithfulness are and how God stands in relation to those who have faith. Put most simply, we see in Abel a man whose faith was demonstrated in a particular act of worship. In Enoch, we see a man who, according to the very limited window that we have into his life, is presented as a man whose life was defined by that sort of worship. Not to take anything away from Abel, it's just that the text deals with him in terms of one specific thing, whereas uh, Enoch is presented as a man whose whole life was one of the worship of faith and receiving God's approbation accordingly. Well, I'm going to read then with you through uh, the first six verses, again, just to set the context in Hebrews 11. As Chris cited, the, the writer says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. In other words, the, the bringing into the presence and give into the present and giving substance to that which lies out in the future. And in similar fashion, parallelly, uh, in a parallel way, it is, as the NES says, the conviction of things not seen. It is the embodying or the giving certitude to those things that we cannot detect with our senses. 
For by it the men of old gained approval. That's kind of an introductory statement to now these individuals that he begins to unfold. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of that which is visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before being taken up he was pleasing to God." And without faith, it is impossible to please him, to please God. For he he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So like I did last time, I want to kind of set the background for understanding this person, Enoch. Um, Not simply, again, this is important, What the writer is doing here is not just randomly picking individuals that he can thumb through the Old Testament and say, oh, there was a guy who was faithful, I'll put him in my list. It's not an arbitrary, random sort of thing, but he's actually building the case for how in the movement of the salvation history and the hope attached to God's pledge to renew and restore all things, these are individuals who, in a sense... um, are, are like uh, breadcrumbs along the way, showing how in each generation, at each stage of the development of the salvation history and the working out of this promise of God that first came in Eden, you have these individuals who are living in view of that hope. They're not random, discrete individuals who happen to believe God so they could go to heaven. That's not the point. They're bound together as as in this chain of faithfulness, as God is working out his purposes in the world through human beings, ultimately culminating in the Messiah himself. That's the linkage that's here. And he could have added other people to this list, but that's the chain that he's building. That's the movement of his thought. And that's the way that I want us to think about it. So the scripture in presenting um, uh, this man Enoch puts him and treats him in a way that the readers will say, okay, I see the significance of this man, Enoch, in the unfolding and the working out of the purposes of God. And that means that we have to dig into the history a little bit. We have to dig into the circumstances in which he existed. And Genesis, uh, Meredith Klein uh, wrote a book probably about 20, 20 years ago or so called The Kingdom Prologue. It's his commentary on Genesis. And his point of that is that by the time we finish Genesis, we've established the whole foundation for understanding the kingdom of God. Everything that comes after the book of Genesis is just the fleshing out of what Genesis has presented and made known. It is the prologue to the kingdom of God. It moves us from the creation to the point where Israel, the people of Israel, the covenant house are in exile in Egypt. But with the hope and the confidence that the God who has promised will end the exile and will restore all things. And Genesis itself is constructed around 
ten generation sections. These are the generations of the Toledoth, the generations, ten generation sections. And if you look even at those generation sections as the structural backbone of the book of Genesis, you see how they are themselves emphasizing the point of the Genesis narrative, which is this unfolding purpose of God bound up in human beings. So the first generation section says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth in the day that God created them. The creation itself. The next one is, these are the generations of Adam. Creation, man, the relationship between them. So you have the creation, you have Adam, Noah, Noah's three sons, who are the new creational humanity coming out of the flood. Then you have the particular son of Noah, through whom the promise will be perpetuated, Shem. And then you have Terah, the father of Abraham. And then you have Ishmael and Isaac. Again, two strands, Jacob and Esau. Esau first, then Jacob. The ten generation sections of Genesis. It's building its case around these men, not just because we happen to like these men or God picked them or whatever in the sense of they're a good one to build the thread around, but because of their central place and again this purpose of God revealed in Genesis 1 tied to the man and the woman and ultimately to be worked out in the seed who is to come. So sitting within that is where you find Enoch. His significance is where he fits in that strand. And what we see right away is that the Enoch that is being referenced here is one of two men named Enoch. The first one is the first son of Cain, born to Cain in the exile from the garden. The second one is a descendant of Seth. Abel was killed. When Seth is born, Eve says, God has given me a replacement for Abel. And the text wants you to see that the human race is basically um, moving forward under two different lines, the line of Cain and the line of Seth. Cain's first son is a man named Enoch, The seventh generation, seven is a number of kind of completion or significance or fullness. Uh, The seventh generation from Seth is another Enoch, the Enoch here in this particular text. So Seth represented the faithful line. Out of Seth comes Noah. Out of Seth comes Shem as the son of Noah, Terah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moving down the line. Cain represents the part of humanity, if you will, the balance of humanity. There's really only two lines in the way the text treats it. There's the Sethite line, which represents the faithful line. 
Then there is the line of Cain, which represents the remaining part of humanity given over to unbelief, autonomy, the hubris that results from the fall. So Cain and his line represent fallen man. Man as he exists in the context of alienation, self-centeredness, autonomy, independence, the pride that led to the fall and that is, it even flows out of that. Man, what, remember, the heart of the fall was the issue of the seduction to man, the image bearer, that he would be more fully and more truly like God if he established himself independently of God. And that is the lie out of which all other lies proceed. The epitome of idolatry is man's worship of himself, man's sense of self-significance independent of God, that he can think and act and judge in and out of himself apart from God. Doesn't mean he's an atheist, doesn't mean he doesn't care about God, but God himself is subject to man's own thought and judgment and desires and interests. God is the servant of human idolatry. Cain's line represents that. So each of these Enochs is significant in his own way, hugely significant, in a sense hinted at by the very name Enoch, which means dedicated or a dedication. Again, putting this in the historical context, and even as it represents the playing out of God's purposes, all of Adam's descendants existed in the same human context of the fall, exile, alienation. In that sense, there's no difference between Cain and Abel. There's no difference between Cain and Seth. There's no difference between these two Enochs. They're both fallen human beings living under the curse in the context of that exile and that alienation from God. The difference is the text wants you to see that Cain found refuge in that circumstance. It wasn't an alien thing to him. It became how he knew life to be. It became his refuge in a sense. You see this in that he builds a city for himself and he names it after his son. Enoch Cain's son is the namesake of this city. And the text shows you, this is all in Genesis 5, it shows you that this city is marked by the glory of human wisdom, human insight, human aesthetic, human intellect, human accomplishment, human ingenuity, the development of arts, the development of architecture, the, all of these things that, that we look back even in, in our own near history and we, we look back to before the Enlightenment, to you know, the time uh, leading into the Reformation, the time when, when art flourished and, and culture and literature and all these things. This is that city. You see the beginnings of, of man's own manifesting of his glory in this city named after Enoch. On the other hand, you have the text indicating that Seth's Seth's descendants, as he begins to have offspring, it says, and at that time they began to seek God. 
So those are set in contrast. Cain's own tribute to himself in a city that he names after a son in his own image and likeness. And the descendants of Cain who are of Seth who are seeking God. The point is that the Sethite line, if you will, sought God as their dwelling place and refuge. Cain and his offspring constructed a human habitation. A habitation that operates very well in the context of the fall. What's often called the city of man. The city of man. They established their own human habitation as their dwelling. And so these two Enochs, Cain's son and the seventh from Seth, represent in the text the two possible human orientations in the context of the fall. There are two two ways that human beings can be oriented in their human existence in the context of this cursed creation that we inhabit. Life defined by God and communion with him, God as the dwelling place of man, or life defined by the self. Self as the dwelling place. Life as we know it. Life as we seek it to be. Our hopes, our dreams, So Cain's son accorded well with this fallen world, symbolized in the city that bore his name. Cain and his son Enoch. It bore, the name of the city was Enoch. And Cain and his son both accorded well with that. A city marked by the glory, human existence marked by the glory of autonomous ingenuity, accomplishment, aesthetic The second Enoch sought and found his lasting habitation with God. That's the idea that lies, all of that lies behind this. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. So these two men have huge symbolic importance in the scriptural story. It's it's easy for us saints, and, and you know this happens often in different passages in the scripture where it's like these long genealogical lists, and we're like, who do? Why do I care about all these people? I don't know who they are. It's just a list of names. Why do I care about this? Well, the text isn't concerned about a list of names. It's about building. It's concerned with building the case for how God is accomplishing this purpose and the significance of those individuals in that process. It's not about either of these Enochs per se. It's not about Cain per se. It's, it's a way, by linking these ideas to these men, the text is saying, here's how we understand the world coming out of the fall and the process by which God is moving towards putting this all back together. And that's why this text can make these guys be so significant and tell you almost nothing about them. Because it doesn't matter of what their personal lives were like in the details. Did he get married? Did he do this? How tall was he? What kind of food did he like? None of that matters. They have a symbolic significance in the way that God chose to record them for the sake of the salvation history. 
So again, these guys are hugely significant, these two Enochs, evident even in their name. The first Enoch is dedicated to the city of man. He embodies and represents, he symbolizes the eager, joyful hubris of human alienation from God. The other Enoch is dedicated to God in a way that he represents man living as created. God as the dwelling place of his people. In terms of the text, it's in, uh, the text itself and what the writer is drawing from, just like with Abel, he has just a snippet to tell you this man was faithful. And what Genesis tells you is that the faith or faithfulness of Enoch was in this. He walked with God. That's all it says. He walked with God. But we have to even understand that in a biblical way. Because it doesn't mean that that he liked God or he obeyed God or, or whatever. It doesn't have anything to do with his own personal piety in the way that we think about that. This idea of walking with God speaks to true, personal, perpetual intimacy with God. There's a difference between intimacy with God and piety. Paul was a pious man, and he was an enemy of the living God, right? Before he came to know God in Christ. Piety says nothing about our intimacy with God. People can live pious lives, religious lives, informed lives, disciplined lives for all kinds of reasons. That doesn't mean they know God. That doesn't mean they commune with God. So Enoch walked with God. It talks about, again, this intimacy by which he ordered his life with God. And the writer says, just as with Abel, that God affirmed that. There was an approbation of that faith. He took Enoch to himself. So Abel's faith was demonstrated in an act of worship by faith, and God acknowledged and approved of his faith by receiving that offering, right? An offering in faith that God received was the way in which God affirmed the faith behind the offering. With Enoch, the faith was in a worshipful life. A life of perpetual communion with God, the seeking of God, and therefore the acknowledgement of that faith was not the receiving of a particular thing, but the receiving of the man himself. Abel's faith was in his offering. God received his offering. Enoch's faith is in his perpetual walk with God. God affirmed that faith by receiving the man. Both men substantiated their faith by their faithfulness, and God approved and appropriated. He he put his stamp of approval on that faithfulness appropriately for each one. Well, the one thing that the text doesn't do, but that we tend to get preoccupied with, is, okay, 
God approved of Enoch by taking him, but what exactly happened and what did it look like? And what was the result of it? We in the scientific, rationalistic, materialistic age want to know how did it work? What were the mechanisms of it? How do we understand that? And the Hebrews writer, just like the Genesis account, made no effort to explain what this taking, how it worked, what was the mechanism of it. Really, all it says in Hebrew is that Enoch walked with God and he was no more because God took him. That's all it says. It doesn't give any further explanation. Because it doesn't matter how God did it. What matters is that God did this thing and why he did it. Why he did it. This was God's work, a supernatural act, at which attested the veracity, the, the authenticity of Enoch's faith. The communion that Enoch enjoyed with God. And so this taking of Enoch, we're to understand it as simply God bringing to a consummate pinnacle the communion, the intimacy that Enoch had had with him all along. It's simply God finalizing in a climactic way, in that sense, laying his hand on this intimacy which had been characteristic of Enoch all along. We're not to think of it in terms of some profound supernatural act, how did God do it, but that God was laying his hand on Enoch's life with him by gathering up, gathering him up to himself in that way. There have been different views concerning this because, again, there's been a tendency through church history to try to say, what was this? What, did it, what really happened? One of the views that, that has been around for some time is that this idea of God taking him was just a euphemism for the fact that he died prematurely. And if you look at the Genesis account, the genealogy in chapter 5, you do see that compared with the patriarchs before him and after him, Enoch lived a short life, 365 years. Everybody around him is like eight, 900 years. And so they say, well, what this means is that he walked with God and then he was no more. God took him. And God took him in a way that set him apart because he died much younger than all of these other people before him and after him. Others, particularly uh, amongst Jewish commentators, Philo, first century Jewish philosopher, others, said this really speaks to a moral issue, that, that God took him in the sense that God removed him from the kinds of temptations and difficulties and distractions that the fall presents. God preserved him in a place by removing him from the things that would lead him away and cause him to wander from God. Well, the Septuagint, which the writer is quoting from, the the Greek version of the Old Testament, really captures the idea in the way that the writer of Hebrews does. It conveys the idea of of a taking away. The basic idea of of the verb that the the Greek translators used is to remove something to a different place or to place something alongside. 
is kind of the generic sense. So it can carry the, uh, the connotation throughout the scriptures of the idea of uh, transferring or, or transposing, moving something, shifting something, transferring something, transporting something. Here the idea that the writer of Hebrews picks up is the idea of a translation, the translating of the man himself. And I would argue even that though that's strictly that Hebrew statement, he was no more because God took him, that can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. It doesn't mean a deathless transference. The writer of Hebrews understood it that way because he says he took him so that he did not see death, right? But I would argue that the the larger Genesis text indicates that because if you look at Adam's genealogy, the second of the generation sections, the text conspicuously attaches this statement to each of those men, and he died. Adam's life, and he died. Seth, and he died, and he died, and he died. Every one of those, all the way through the whole genealogy. The only one who that's not said about is Enoch in that whole genealogy. And so the text does support that idea of a deathless transference into God's presence. The only other thing that I will add to that, because again, the, the, the scriptures don't tell us exactly how this happened or what we're to make of this. He and Elijah are the only ones that the Old Testament gives the indication that they passed into God's presence without physically dying. But what we don't want to do is we don't want to confuse this, and some have, some commentators even have, we don't want to confuse this phenomenon involving Enoch with the instantaneous in the twinkling of an eye transformation of our bodies, our humanness at the return of Christ for those who are alive. What we call the rapture phenomenon, if you will. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4. We shall not all sleep, we will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. At the parousia, those who are alive will be transformed fully body and spirit. In other words, there's a deathless transformation. But this is a different thing because that idea of the end of the age, instant deathless transformation of our human existence, body and spirit, is our full Christiformity, our conformity to Christ. That was not the case with Enoch. Whatever we make of it, it's a different thing. Enoch couldn't experience what Paul is talking about, what will happen for living Christians at Christ's return. Enoch couldn't experience that because it means sharing in Jesus' resurrection glory as consummate man. And that couldn't happen until Jesus was resurrected. And if you think, well, maybe that's not the case at all, look at the way that the writer ends the chapter He says, all these, that includes Enoch, all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. 
because God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They're complete, they would not be made complete, all of these who he cites, all of these men and women of faith who God gave his approbation to, they would not be perfected. They would not receive what God was promised apart from us. Why apart from us? Because we are those who dwell in the fullness of the times, the ends of the ages. It was the coming of the Messiah that fulfilled the promise, what they were waiting for. And so Enoch himself, who was translated from this world without dying, nonetheless entered into God's presence without having received what was promised. He would not be made perfect apart from us, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And this is very much... The way Paul speaks in, in Romans chapter 6, this is 1 Corinthians 15, this is Philippians 3. The hope of this full transformation of our humanness, body and spirit, that awaits the resurrection of the last day, the coming of, or the, the parousia of the Messiah. So I want to conclude this by then looking at Verse 6. That's really all that the writer has to say about Enoch himself. But what flows out of that is a kind of clarifying statement is verse 6. Because he's already said that Enoch was taken as God attesting his good pleasure with Enoch in that way, attesting his faith. Look again. Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. He was not found in the sense that he didn't leave a body behind, he didn't leave a grave behind, he was gone. For he had obtained the witness, God's witness, that even before being taken up, he was pleasing to God. That translation out of the world was God making manifest the approval of Enoch and his faith that existed before his being taken up. This taking up was God's way of attesting, in that sense, recompensing Enoch's faith. And verse 5 tells us that Enoch's faith was the reason God was pleased with him. But 11.6, which is a kind of enlarging of, of his statement about Enoch, makes it clear in an explicit way, but stated negatively. Verse 5 tells us, right, that Enoch was taken up because God was pleased with him. By faith he was taken up, by virtue of his faith. Verse 6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So the same truth, God's pleasure is bound up in this thing called faith, but he states it from the negative side. So verse 6 both explains his comments about Enoch, that's why I put them together, but it also forms another kind of parenthetic that, that, that functions together with verses 1 and 2 as a general lens for understanding what the writer says about all of these individuals. 1 and 2 tell us what faith is. 
Verse 6 tells us that that alone pleases God. So all of these individuals, named, unnamed, and he says, I could go on forever telling you other, other individuals, but all the ones he names, all the ones he doesn't name, for all their differences, different circumstances, different times, different issues, all of these faithful received the exact same approval from God, the good pleasure of God, on the basis of their faith. He says it is the only way to obtain God's approval. And I want to end, and maybe this isn't something that occurs to you or you don't even really care about, but as I look at this and I think about how we tend to think about faith, I think it's very easy to miss the point here or at least get get off track somewhat. What exactly is the relationship between faith and God's approval? It's easy to say, okay, without faith, it's impossible to please God, but it begs the question, okay, then what does faith really look like? If only faith will approve, will gain God's approval, what does it look like to have faith? And I would argue that since the Reformation, post-Reformation, even during the Reformation, but post-Reformation Protestantism has largely focused on this issue that, that Luther called the very marrow of the gospel, salvation by grace through faith. We've made this idea of, am I saved by faith or am I saved by my works or by a combination of them, such a central issue in Christian thinking that it colors the way that we understand what the writer's getting at here, even if we're not aware that that's happening. The tendency, talk to other Christians, ask them about what is this relationship between faith and God's approval and see how they answer that question. Faith is very commonly perceived. If you ask people, what is faith? What does it mean to have faith? It's thought through this lens as as faith being one means of personal salvation in contrast to works. Faith is how I get right with God, as opposed to my works. And from that vantage point, we tend to want to think, okay, what the writer is saying is God is pleased with us when we trust Jesus for our salvation rather than trusting our works. That's what pleases him. When we believe in Jesus for our salvation instead of trusting in our own personal works. Then when we hear this expression, without faith it's impossible to please God, it means, okay, what he's saying is it's impossible for us to earn or merit God's approval and acceptance or earn our salvation from what we do. We, we have this dichotomy of faith and works, faith and works, faith and works. And it's gotten so entrenched in certain circles that, that I know certain uh, reform traditions that actually go so far as to say that even faith is a work. We've we got to get work so far out of the equation that faith itself is a work. So it's essentially in that tradition, uh, salvation by election, 
We have to take the human being completely out of the equation or we're compromising the sovereignty of God. And all of this gets twisted up and spun up. And certainly in some traditions, this is the way that we think about faith. And so that's the lens through which we read this. And that's my point. We have to guard against that. And I'm not saying that the relationship between faith and works and our personal salvation is irrelevant. I think we've turned it into uh, you know, a, a monolith that the scripture doesn't afford to it, and it certainly doesn't treat it in the way that we, we tend to want to treat it. But I'm not saying it's irrelevant, but I am saying that's not the point that the writer is trying to get at, and that's not what we should take away from our understanding of Enoch himself or this roll call of faith. The way that he describes faith, even in verse 1, shows that he's not speaking of faith as the soteriological alternative to works. He doesn't say in verse 1, now faith is the way that people actually get saved as opposed to trusting in their works. That's not what he says. He says faith is a way of looking at life. Faith is a way of thinking about human existence and the world around us that is framed by the truth of the God who is and the God who has spoken. Faith brings into the present that which is hoped for. Well, it's not our wishful thinking. It's not our wish dream. We hope for that which God has promised. So faith is binding over to the God who is and who has spoken. It enables us to see as actually existing what our senses can't tell us. It's a faculty of discernment, but it's all bound up again in this way of being human. It's not a mechanism to go to heaven, is my point. That's not how the writer is treating it. He's treating it as the essence of authentic human existence, as I said, as we began uh, moving into chapter 11. Faith is living in devoted, trusting intimacy with the Creator Father revealed in the Scriptures and thoroughly, exhaustively, personally revealed in the Messiah himself. We don't know this God unless we know him in Jesus. But it's devoted, trusting, perpetual communion with that God as image children. And through that intimacy, therefore, fulfilling our human identity and vocation unto God's glory. You know, the confession says... Uh, you know, why did God create all things? Well, he created them for his own glory. Okay, let's move on. Well, what does that mean? What is God's glory? God is the truth. God's glory is when all things reflect him and express him as the truth. Everything that flows out of him expresses the truth of who he is. So the life of faith is is the vindication of the truth. To live authentically as human beings is to vindicate the truth of what it is. What is a human being? What is it to live the human life? Who is this God? 
And to live an authentic human life is to reflect the truth of the living God. That's why we see that epitomized in Jesus himself. You see me, you see the Father. You see the man Jesus, you see the living God. The one who embodies the truth in that way. That's how God is glorified in people. That's how faith glorifies God. That's why the writer says faith alone pleases God. It's not because by believing that Jesus died for me, I obtain the merit of Jesus' uh, you know, perfect law-keeping, and he died, and that merit is imputed to my account. That's not how faith pleases God in that, okay, now that gets me Jesus' merit, and now God is happy with me because he's happy with Jesus. Faith pleases God because it takes hold of him in truth. It takes hold of this God who is known in Jesus in truth. It seeks him. It embraces him as he actually is for who he is. Not out of our speculation and not out of our self-seeking. So much even of what we call evangelism is just pandering to people's self-seeking. You know, you, you can get a room full of kids to come to Jesus in 30 seconds by simply saying, do you want to go burn in a terrible place called hell forever? Or do you want to, to have this God who loves you and is going to do wonderful things for you, right? It's like asking somebody, would you like me to give you $200 or pull out your fingernails with pliers? It's a pretty easy choice. When we evangelize in that way of giving people an alternative to a bad outcome by giving them a good outcome, guess which they're going to choose? A good outcome. But as Bonhoeffer said, it's just chasing the wish dream. That's not what faith is. That's not what living by faith is. It's not believing God's going to give me everything I want now and then heavenly glory ever after. Enoch was not granted to see what we have seen, the glory of God in the face of Christ, but he did know the good and wise creator God who had made a world to be a certain way and put man, the image bearer, in the center of that. In other words, he knew what Genesis 1 and 2 captures for us, the purpose and goal of human existence and why God created this world in the first place, the wisdom, the goodness, the glory of that God. And he knew the promise of that God to restore all things, and he lived that out. He entrusted himself fully and communed with that God in the present unto that future. And and God ratified that devotion in this deathless ingathering. So Enoch lived with his gaze directed heavenward and God rewarded or recompensed. He gave what was due to that perpetual longing. Enoch transcended death. He's this prototypical. Remember, the promise of God was life out of death. The promise to Eve was life out of death. Death, the curse is death. All things 
destroyed from the truth of what they are. Alienation, the curse. And the promise was life out of death. And God did it over and over and over again. Life out of dead wombs. Israel out of Egypt. The period of the judges. The promise to restore David's house and throne and kingdom. Life out of death. And here comes the Messiah. Right? John 1. He trans, he's the, the prototypical picture of that, the man who transcended death and therefore transcended the curse's great power. What is the power of the curse? Death. He transcended the curse by a deathless exit in order to enter God's presence. And in that way, Enoch, like Abel, continues to testify. He told us Enoch, or Abel, though dead, continues to speak. And Enoch continues to speak. He affirms and strengthens the resolve of all of those who live in hope of renewal and the resurrection of the dead. This is how God understands, this is how the scriptures understand faith. Many of you are familiar with Psalm 73, the Psalm of Asaph, and it's a great psychological study in what this thing called faith really looks like. Asaph looked around him, even among the sons of Israel, and he was absolutely torn up inside because he saw the wicked prospering. He saw people who disobey God, who who wag their tongues against God, flourishing. They wear their pride like a necklace. Everything goes well for them. And he said, I've kept my heart in purity, and it's been nothing but trouble. And he said, I was so vexed by this, I couldn't even speak to other people because I'd caused them to stumble. This was so irritating to me that the wicked prosper and God does nothing about it. And those like me that that are faithful and devout, we suffer. And he said, this absolutely tormented me until I entered into the sanctuary of God. When I entered into God's presence and saw things from his perspective, then it changed. His perspective changed. Not only the way he viewed the prospering of the wicked, but the way he viewed himself. He was just as foolish and misguided in his appraisal of himself as he was these who seemed to be prospering. He says, if I... Um, It was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end, but also myself. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away by sudden terrors like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you are aroused, you will despise their form. But as for me, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, I was senseless and ignorant. I was just as guilty as they are. I was a beast before you, 
But nevertheless, even in that, even in my stupidity, even in my resentment, even in my pride, my hubris, I've recognized I'm continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me. You will bring me out of my folly. You will guide me. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Who then do I have in heaven but you? And having you, I desire nothing on the earth. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You've destroyed all those who are unfaithful. Faith is not believing information to to get a good outcome. Faith is this issue of authentic human existence, intimacy with the living God, the God who is. That's the contrast here. God is the strength of my heart. God is continually with me. He is my portion. All who are far from you are those who are unfaithful. But for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge. This is the portrait throughout the Psalms. And I want to just conclude with Psalm 16, a very clearly understood messianic psalm, but as this idea of faithful human existence, as the writer's building this case, and he's going to keep doing this through chapter 11, but all of this is moving and pointing and preparing a kind of portrait and and a preparing of our understanding for the ultimate faithful man who will come, the Messiah himself. This is David's psalm, Psalm 16. Now, now listen to what David says here. And remember again, Peter draws from this psalm at Pentecost to substantiate his claim of the resurrection of the Messiah. Life out of death. That God took the faithful son to himself. The one who walked before him in faith as Enoch did, God took him to him. He transcended death. Psalm 16. And this is David, but even Peter recognized David being a prophet and knowing that God had pledged to set one of his descendants on his throne, looked into the future and spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. He doesn't say, deliver me from my difficulty so I can get on with my life and I'll thank you for solving my problems. Preserve me. You are my refuge. I said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the holy ones who are in the earth, when I look around and I see all of those who are devoted to you, dedicated to you, they are the majestic ones. They are the ones in whom is all my delight. Not the ones who have money or power or prestige or accomplish great things. It's the holy ones, the sanctified ones, the dedicated ones, the Enoch ones. They are my delight. 
The sorrows of those, in contrast, the sorrows of those who have bartered for another God, their sorrows will be multiplied. I will not pour out their libations of blood, nor will I take their names on my lips. I will not join myself to them. These are the ones in whom I take delight. Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Yahweh is my inheritance. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my inheritance is beautiful to me. Yahweh is my inheritance. I will bless the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night with his wisdom. I have set Yahweh continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And therefore, my heart is glad. My glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. There's even hope for my flesh, even in the context of mortality. For you will not abandon my being to Sheol. This is what Peter cites from what Pentecost You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forever. These are David's words, but they're David's words that in a sense speak to the the reality of the faithfulness of the Messiah. How will Jesus be a man of faith like this? This is how Jesus lived his life. Lord, eat. I have food you don't know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. God's heart, God's mind, this living God who really is, he is everything. He's my inheritance. He's the truth. That's what it means that Enoch walked with God. And he becomes this prototype of those who commune with God transcend death and ultimately realized in the Messiah himself. This is so much more, saints, than just a catalog of people who believed God and were saved because they trusted in, in you know, a future work of, of Jesus dying for them um, as opposed to trusting in their works. They lived in view of the God who had promised that he would one day renew all things and sum up everything in the heavens and the earth by a great work of his own power. I will come. I will heal. I will renew. Stop looking anxiously about you and know that I am he, the Holy One of Israel. You want to do something for me? Trust my word. You can't give me anything. You can't do anything for me. I made all things. This is the one for whom I'll have regard. The one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. What word? I am he. I will do it. I will renew. I will restore. I am your hope. I am your joy. I am your inheritance. Is that enough? Is that enough for us saints? I don't think it is most of the time. It's the reason that we grumble, that we complain, that we're unhappy, that we're always looking for the next thing. 
think of Psalm 16 and put that in the mind and the mouth of our Messiah, the one whose image and likeness we're being transformed into. And I think it'll change the way we think. We all have to do business with that. We live in a culture that is so corrupted the way we think about this whole Christian thing that we don't even realize how much it's affected us. All these gained approval through their faith. And so it is with us. It hasn't changed. Father, I pray that you would help us in this. And all I can say is that for my own part, what makes a difference is sincere, consecrated times of contemplation and prayer thoughtfulness to the extent that we're caught up in the busyness of life these things will not work their way into our hearts and our minds and they certainly will not transform the way we meet the circumstances of life if we can't set aside the time to truly chew on these things and own them And allow them by your spirit to work their way deep inside of us and to transform us. Then it will never be said of us that we walked with our God. And we could very well find ourselves those who, as Paul said, in that day when when each life is measured according to this truth of what it is to really live before God as human beings, that that all that we think that we've accomplished, all of our excellencies, all of our attainments, all of our spiritual attainments, it will all be burned up and we will suffer loss. Father, I pray that it's not enough for us to simply hope that when we die, our spirits will squirt into heaven and we made it. I pray that our longing will be not even just to get the accolade of well done, thou good and faithful servant. But that really what motivates us is the true understanding. And not just the understanding, but the ownership in our hearts, our minds, our hearts, our spirits. The ownership of the truth, the all comprehending truth that you are our heritage. That in your right hand are pleasures forever. In your presence is fullness of joy. That being with you, that communing with you in Christ by the Spirit is to have everything. As Paul told the Corinthians, we have nothing and yet we have everything. We are poor and yet we make many rich. Father, I pray that you would transform us, that we would truly understand and that we would lay hold of what it is to be people of faith. That we would live out now in the moments, in the hours, what it is that we say that we long for as our eternal inheritance, everlasting, perfect, delightful, exhaustive, 
intimacy with you. And deliver us from those things that distract us. Deliver us not from the distractions per se, but from the preoccupation with them. Give us the grace and the resource by your spirit to have hearts and minds set on the reality that Christ is our life, that we died, our lives are hidden with Christ in you. Give us the discipline and give us the courage and give us even the unction, Father, to be a meditating, praying, consecrated people. Be merciful to us that we would find time in our busy days. I know some here are so tyrannized with so many things that that they can barely find time to, to take a meal. But I pray that for all of the pressures and the burdens that you would grant to each one of us, that rest on the hill difficulty, and that we would indeed be a people who are given over to walking with our God in every moment, in every circumstance. What a difference it would make, not only in our lives, not only in our families, not only in your church, but in the witness that we give to the world. As Chris said, that the world would see a new creation. Well, what does that look like? It looks like a new community of human beings who are actually the image and the likeness of the living God because they commune so intimately with him that to see them is to see the Father. That's our destiny. May it be our longing now. And do all these things that Christ would truly, not just as a platitude, but truly be glorified in his church and through his church in the world. Amen.